Um, if you have a Bible with you this morning, it would be a good time to open it to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at a number of passages today as we talk about the subject of gospel centrality. What does it mean to live or lead a gospel-centered life? What does that look like? Uh, how do you know whether that's what you're really doing? Because far more people talk about living it than actually do, in my humble but accurate opinion. But today I wanted us to look in Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 19, and I will read through uh, verses to the 24th verse. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the, is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we take the time today to look at this uh, important subject for all of us in the coming year, that the Holy Spirit would be the one who captures our attention with the truth and brings it to bear upon our souls so that we will be in one sense different than when we came today because you have spoken to us and you have worked in the depths of our souls. And so, Father, we do pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's New Year's Day, 2023. I remember as a little boy figuring out how old I would be in the year 2000. And so I did my little math project. I wrote down 2000. I wrote down 1953, the year I was born. And I said, I'll be 47 years old when the year 2000 comes. Boy, is that old. Well, you can do the math. It's a whole lot older now with 23 years added. So as a result of that, I always like to think of the new year as a time in which we sort of take stock and do an assessment of the direction of our lives. People often, after the first of the year, uh, make changes or alterations or adjustments to their living situations and their lifestyle. They tend to look ahead. They tend to tinker with their paradigm here and there. Uh, but when we think of the new year, I want us to think about what it means and what it looks like to live 
with the gospel at the center and core of our being. We talk about that a lot here. It's printed on the front of your bulletin. It's very, very central to our vision and core values as a church. But sometimes you can say all the right shibboleths and yet not still capture it. We don't get it. We don't, it doesn't make its way through the entirety of our being. We sort of kind of have a vague sense or idea of what it means to be gospel-centered, but we, we, if we were pressed and asked to describe what that looks like in a life, some of us might find that difficult. And that's because it is complicated, it is challenging. But every single person sitting in this room has what I call a personal center. The Bible calls it the heart. In our reading, we read in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when we talk about living life and we're talking about what life looks like, you look like what you treasure. That's what you look like. You live like what you treasure. It provides for you your source of security. It provides for you your identity as a person. It provides for you guidance. You make decisions based upon what you treasure. It provides for you wisdom because what you treasure is sort of your north star. It's sort of your input for life. And it is the central power motivationally of your heart. That's what your personal center is. Whatever is the center of our life will be the source of our security, guidance, wisdom, and power. Security represents your sense of worth, um, your identity, your sense or sensation of being somebody. And so we hear a lot today about identity. And we hear a lot about identity politics. We hear a lot about race, gender, um, all of these things, and people struggling with the concept of identity, the sense of rightness as a person or righteousness that is being who I really am. There's a big, strong move in our culture, people seeking for some kind of source of security. Guidance means your source for moment-by-moment decision-making and living of life. Wisdom is your perspective on life, your understanding of how all the various parts of your life come together and makes a sense as some sort of whole. How do they, uh, the principles of life apply and relate to each other? Power is the capacity to act strength and potency to actually accomplish something. There are many personal centers that people have, even in the church, that are inadequate and self-defeating. For example, take money, which we just read about in Matthew's gospel. Possessions can be a personal center for you. You only feel secure when you have enough money. Of course, nobody ever has enough but let's say you have substantial resources and the more they grow, the better they are, the more secure you feel in life. Uh, you tend to define your personal worth by your net worth. You're vulnerable to anything that threatens your economic security. 2022 was not a good year for you. 
your profit becomes your decision-making criterion. If your heart treasures money, then everything is evaluated in terms of whether it's profitable or you will lose your possessions or your money or your economic security. Um, if you're successful with money, the temptation is to feel superior to those who have less than you. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm, I have more gifts than you. I, I'm more powerful than you. I, I matter more than you because I have uh, financial independence and maybe even wealth. And if you're not as successful as you want to be, however, the temptation is to jealousy and envy of those who are doing better than you. Other inadequate personal centers are work and achievement, family and children, pleasure and comfort, spouse and love, relationships and approval, and religious uh, morality. Those can all be very inadequate personal centers in your life. Why? Because they're idolatry. One of the most, most fascinating insights I ever heard and ran into was the idea of idolatry in the Bible, that the sin underneath our acts of sin in this life are driven by what we love most. They're driven by what we treasure, what we care about, what is really meaningful to us. And by the way, here's the thing I've learned about idolatry that's helped me a great deal. It's not so much craving and wanting and pursuing and going after something that's good. It's wanting something that is good too much. It's what the Bible calls an inordinate desire. It is over-obsessing that unless I have this particular thing in my life, I cannot be happy. I cannot be whole. I will never feel secure. And so you can take all the sins that you see in the Bible. Luther put it this way. He said the reason why com uh, commandments 3 through 10 are broken is because we first break commandment 1 and 2. We depart from our relationship with, with our soul, personal center, being focused upon our triune God. And because of that, then we begin to break commandments because he's not central to our existence. Idolatry is a pretty complicated subject, but I did want to take a moment to say something about it that I hope is helpful to you because I don't think you really get gospel centrality till you get the concept of idolatry. And so what is idolatry? Well, idolatry, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones in his studies on the uh, book of 1 John, says an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. We take good things basic things and elevate them into ultimate things and so you may be a person right now if I was to look at your life I could say well they look like a Christian they seem to live like a Christian they attend church they come regularly they may even give and they may be involved in ministry but when you cut to the core of what they're about it isn't the gospel 
They have something else that they take it in creation. This is all in Romans 1. Elevated it to ultimate status and fall in love with it. Um, a person who I admire writing on this particular subject is someone by the name of Thomas Oden. You don't know who he is, and it's all right if you don't know who he is. You might know who he is. But he, he said something that I found profoundly true about this subject. He says, every self or person exists in relation to values perceived as making life worth living. A value is anything good in the created order, any idea, relation, object, or person in which one has an interest from which one derives significance. That value makes my life have meaning and it makes it worth living, whatever I value most. These values compete in time. One is prone to choose a center of value by which every other value is judged which comes to exercise power and preeminence over other values. When a finite value has been elevated to centrality and imagined as a final source of meaning, then one has chosen, whether you know it or not, a God. Little g-o-d. Not the God, but a God. One has a God when a finite value is viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Anytime you say, if this doesn't happen for me, if I don't have this in my life, then my life is not really worth living. You are worshiping a false God. If I don't have the marriage that I think I ought to have, or if I don't have my children or not, what I want them to be or if my career's not going like I want it to be and if I could just have this then my life would have meaning then I would have worth then I would know that I count then I would have significance I would have righteousness as it were let me tell you an insight that blew my socks off the first time I heard it about 20 years ago and it was this um, that I just forgot it. <laughs> I'll come back to it. But uh, yes, it's this. We enter a covenant, really, a covenant of works with whatever values at the center of our being, and we ask that value, what we value most, be it money, people, etc. And if we obey what that value, what we value, it will bless us. If we disobey it, we lose. We lose everything. And so idolatry will ultimately issue in and lead to a life of depression. Uh, to be worshiped as a God, something must be sufficiently good. And so whatever our idol idols are tend to be some things that we would consider, especially in the Reformed culture. For example, um, let's say that the the ultimate value, the center core of my being, is to be theologically correct. To be theologically correct. Therefore, I would feel superior to anyone who doesn't hold my theological positions because that's my ultimate value. And I would look down upon people who do not see it and understand it the way I do. In other words, my theology functionally has become my righteousness. Now this is all going somewhere. Stay patient. 
The next thing that happens to us when we take a finite value and place ultimate trust, it becomes our heart. Anxiety becomes intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose my God is sex or my physical health or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Independent Party. Suppose those are underneath what I really value, what I really care about, what I really think will be my hopes and dreams. If I experience any of these under genuine threat, then I feel shaken to the depths. You ever wonder why you feel empty and anxious? That you can't rest, you can't relax? Could be you're not living a gospel-centered life. The next thing is guilt. Guilt and bitterness. Guilt becomes neurotically intensified to the degree that I have idolized finite values. Suppose I value my ability to teach and communicate clearly, which I do. If, uh, suppose, if clear communication has become an absolute value for me, a center of value that makes all other values valuable, then I feel... If I fail at teaching well, I'm stricken with neurotic guilt. Let's say I, I preach a sermon and it's a bomb. I mean a bomb, a stinker. Still happens. Now, sometimes my stinkers, what I think are stinkers, you think are wonderful. And I'm more shocked and surprised than anybody in the building. But let's say, let's say that I just stand up on New Year's Day like today. I try to preach a sermon. It doesn't go over well. I don't feel like I connected. I don't feel like I communicated. I get in the car. I'm ugly to my wife. Why? I'm mad at her. Why? Because my sermon didn't go well. Because my sermon is my ultimate value. Let's say that I'm driving in traffic. Somebody cuts me off. I flip them off and yell at something. Why did I do that? Because you're just a bad person. No. Because my value got blocked. That which is ultimate to me got blocked by something else. And so, and then when I get home, I'm depressed. I want to be alone. I don't want to talk to anybody. I sulk. I pout. I never do this, by the way. But let's say I did. Then what does that say about me? It tells me that I'm treasuring the wrong thing. That's why I can be hard to get along with. That's why relationships can be difficult. Why? Idolatry. Or as Ed Kelly said a moment ago, reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, that the ultimate problem is sin, but the sin we're talking about is what we really treasure and value. And then finally, and this is the one, this is the signal to me that my heart is not focused upon Jesus. Boredom. Boredom and emptiness. To be bored is to feel empty. Somebody once told me boredom was anticipation of death. Could be. Boredom is an anticipatory form of being dead to the extent to which limited values are exalted to idolatry. When those values are lost, boredom becomes pathological and compulsive. My subjectively experienced boredom may become infinitely greater toward the whole cosmos this is the picture of the self called despair. Ultimately, milder forms of boredom would be disappointment, disillusion, and its twin called cynicism. So I've described for you just a little bit about what it means 
to have an inadequate personal center, how that works itself out in our lives. Um, and so an idol is something within creation that has inflated to function as a substitute for God. All sorts of things can be potential idols. Uh, it could be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. If so, how do we determine when something is an idol? If it leads you, as, as soon as our loyalty to anything leads you to disobey uh, God, you're in danger of making that an idol. And so the most basic question which God poses to every human heart, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Now that's a question for you and me to think about. Has something taken over? Just, just You don't have to do anything for this to happen. You just have to live life and not be proactive about preaching the gospel to yourself. If you fail to do that, you will do this. And that is what your life will look like. And that's why so many Christians appear weak, anemic, frustrated. Some people eventually have the courage to stand up and say, I tried it, it doesn't work for me, I'm walking away. Now, they haven't really tried it because they haven't ever really understood what the gospel is and what it means. So with that set up, let's get into the sermon because it may last a while. Not really, but it'll go on for a little bit. So if we are talking about being a gospel-centered, what is the good news according to Jesus Christ? What is the good news according to Jesus Christ? Well, all of us know that the gospel means good news. It is a message. It is heralded. Let's say a king won a war. He sends ahead of himself uh, riders to go into the city and announce that the king has won the war and he's bringing in the, the booty and the captives and all of that, parading it before people. And that message goes out and people's spirits are lifted and they're exalted because they've heard something unbelievably good. And the unbelievable good news that you and I need to know is that though we are broken and sinful and obstinate and unbelievers and resistant, we are loved and cared for and paid for by someone who took our place. The whole thing about idolatry is it is a form of works righteousness. It's trying to find what worth and righteousness is through what I do, what I accomplish, what I achieve, how I make it happen. What the gospel is, is you see that about your life. You see that there's sin in your life, but you also see that there's a religious dimension to your fallenness and your flesh, which causes you to try to fix it by working yourself into God's acceptance and approval. That we're hardwired that way since the fall. I mean, that's just how we are. We turn the gospel into, I mean, the life into a covenant of works, and we try to achieve God's smile, God's acceptance, God's approval through what we do. But until you understand and repent 
of all of your phony righteousness, all of your attempts to win God over and accept you by what you do, until you do that, you're not even ready for grace yet. And what you need to do is you stop relying on your performance. You start relying on whatever righteousness you have. You don't ask God to purify your righteousness or add something to your righteousness. You repent of your attempt at self-righteousness. And you turn with an empty hand and receive the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price that your sins deserve, both self-righteousness and unbelief and rebellion against God, violating his commandments, the iniquity and the filth of our own lives. You, he, he took that upon himself. He paid that in full upon the cross. And then he gives us his resume his record of righteous and that is the righteousness and that is the only thing that will ever give you rest and peace and worth your identity as a believer in Jesus Christ is that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon you and that is it nothing else figures in the equation it's whether or not you have him and he has you. That is what determines your identity. That is what determines who you are. That is de what determines what your worth is. That determines your security. And yet, we can believe that this morning and forget it this afternoon because we are that kind of creature. But we've got to learn how to shift our paradigm to understand that if I repent of my sins of self-ruling and self-saving, and I look to you because you've paid my debts, you've borne my punishment, you've offered me forgiveness and new life, I, I give you gratitude that my sin and rebellion are yours and your righteous, perfect, and obedient life is mine through faith, Knowing that you died on the cross, you were raised from the dead, I turn from my sin, I receive you as my Savior and Lord, and I anxiously await your coming again and your bringing into existence, or not into existence, but into fullness, the kingdom that you have come. I now resolve in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel working in my life to walk in a manner pleasing to you. You can know all the theology in the world. You can be as reformed as you can be. You can be as Presbyterian as you could be and still not get this, still not understand this. I don't, I don't want to say I'm better than anyone, probably worse than most, but this is what I will say. I can go and sit and listen to a man preach for five minutes and I know whether he gets this. Do you? Do you get this? That your source of security in life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a person who's accomplished a work for you that totally saves you. God has more mercy than you are a mess. God has more grace than you have guilt. And it all comes to you through the Lord of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to be gospel-centered, first of all, means that the gospel is our source of security. It is our righteousness. It is what makes me righteous, and nothing else does. Self-righteousness makes me obnoxious. 
and hard to be around. But gospel righteousness gives me something my heart wants. Instead of anxiety, I have peace. Instead of guilt, I feel accepted for the first time in my own whole life by the one who matters most in the universe. I don't care whether other people accept me. Once they find out I'm a Christian, second they find out I'm a preacher, there's a trifecta coming. Third, they find out I'm reformed. People automatically hate people like me. And I used to care about that, go home, sit in a fetal position and suck my thumb as it were. I don't care anymore. You know why I don't care anymore? Because it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is that my sense of worth and security is built upon the rock, not the sand, but the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! I can get up every day and recognize that. God is not mad at me. He's not waiting to set up my life and ruin me. So easy to believe that when things don't go well, huh? And things don't go away that we want to go away. But Kierkegaard, that great Danish philosopher, argued that sin is essentially an attempt to construct an identity apart from God. In modern thought, identity is determined by what you do, how well you do it, what you get paid for it. Um, it is something earned, something constructed. Uh, in postmodern thought, ident identity is not a given, but it's something you construct. You might have to try on several different identities to find the one that fits you. The gospel gives us the only identity that really fits us since we're sinners and gives us the security that every one of us crave inside. Identity cannot be the result of achievement or our construction. It is a gift freely given to people who don't deserve it, who will never deserve it, don't even want it, don't even think they need it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells me that uh, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, in union with him, connected to him by the Holy Spirit, we have the righteousness of Christ. It is as much mine as if I did it myself. You said that's a legal fiction. No, it's a legal truth. It is the truth. And so we need to learn to live that way. Christ atoned for my sins. The resurrection validates the acceptance, uh, acceptability of that righteousness from the throne of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has become my identity. I feel safe and vulnerable, at peace, filled with hope, no longer bored, full of purpose, full of life, no longer neurotically obsessed with other things. Now, do you know what the daily battle for me is? The daily battle for me is the same daily battle you got. Idols never go away. John Calvin, to show you how old this is, I didn't just come up with this. John Calvin said, the fallen human heart is an idol factory. We are making idols constantly. Sanctification is being delivered more and more from sin, that is idolatry, idol making, and becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ because as we look upon him, as we see him, uh, 
beholding his glory, we are transformed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, more and more into his glory. So we have to learn to rest in that identity. Since I'm saved by grace, I am not inferior or superior to anyone. Since inferiority falls into the trap of comparing ourselves with other people, feeling I am less. The false gospel of accomplishment. I know that there's none righteous, no, not one. Since superiority is an inflated emotional view of my worthiness, the gospel totally deconstructs that illusion. I am, if I, who I am is a gift, then how can I boast and take any credit for it? All striving for and achieving worth and identity are worse than futile. It's damnable. I can rest in Christ and be comfortable in my own skin because the gospel gives me security. Am I a big sinner, big fat technicolor, juicy sinner? Not as much as I was once, but I'm still a sinner. Simul ustus et peccator, at the same time, a sinner and righteous, as righteous as Jesus is. And that's how God the Father sees me. And that's how he loves me. Now, you're not listening fast enough. To be gospel-centered also means that the gospel come, becomes the source of our moment-by-moment decision-making. The gospel is not merely an identity and source of security. It is a lifestyle. Uh, Paul got up into Peter's face in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, verse 14, because Peter, who at one time seemed to be more comfortable around Gentiles, uh, Paul caught him, or heard about him, refusing to eat, have table fellowship with Gentiles. And Paul said, your life, Peter, is out of alignment with the gospel. So there is a way to live that is in alignment with the gospel. There's a way to keep in step with the implications of what the gospel says. It destroys things that nothing else can. The gospel destroys racism if you truly understand it. And it is the only thing that will ever undo racism. Because racism is works righteousness. It's idolatry. And so we have to understand that we have to learn moment by moment, by moment decision-making uh, effort by looking at the gospel and seeing how our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others could be helped by seeing the third way of the gospel. Uh, if I act neither moralistically, that would be legalism, or relativistically, that would be license, but through the gospel, I can obediently uh, experience the freedom of God, and that is I can love. I've met so many people who are good, salt of the earth, solid people, people who I like, people like who I grew up with and around and admired, but they're so offended when you talk to them about their righteousness not being sufficient. They get really mad. I had a really good friend who planted a church in Oxford, Mississippi. And I called him up one day and I said, Shane, his name was Shane's son. I said, Shane, what have you learned about church planting? He said, I had no idea how religious people in the South hate the gospel. How much? They hate it. Why? Because it takes away everything that makes them think they're better. It strips us. 
But it helps us learn how to navigate some of the more difficult choices in life. There are ways to do that. Uh, so let's take, for example, one thing, how Christians respond to suffering, uh, just for time purposes. If I am approaching suffering from a legalistic, moralistic point of view, then I approach suffering that way, I will believe that suffering is a cause and effect phenomenon. I will try to trace my current suffering back to a particular sin, usually a big one, and deduce that God is punishing me because I'm suffering. I will attempt to relieve my suffering by acts of penance to prove that I am very sorry for my sin. The relativistic or licensed response is to blame other people and to assume the identity of a victim and, and to justify myself by victimization. I become bitter and resentful toward life, adopt a jaded and cynical viewpoint. The third way of the gospel gives us the ability to face suffering. How? We know that suffering is not punishment for sin because Jesus was punished for our sin and there is no double jeopardy in divine justice, John Owen told us. We also know that we are both victims and victimizers who deserve far more suffering than we ever receive. Therefore, the gospel helps us see suffering as a means through which we participate in the sufferings of Christ and enter more fully into deep fellowship with him. Suffering enables us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We don't glory in suffering. We're not masochistic, but we welcome what it produces in us. This is an example of how we respond with the gospel as the source of our moment-by-moment decision-making. You learn how to think out the implications of the gospel when you meet something where you have to have a decision to make. Gospel centrality is also the way of wisdom. J.I. Packer said, knowing God, he defines wisdom as the use of the best means to accomplish the greatest ends that brings the most glory to God and the greatest good to man. By the way, I had a fellow tell me one time at the gym, he said, well, that's all good for God. He said, God is selfish. He wants all the glory to himself. And I had the wit to say, no, that's you. That's not God. I said, what we're talking about here is whatever is great for the whatever is the glory of God that he receives is the best thing that could ever happen to us it is our goodness it is for our good that he gets glory he's alone he alone is worthy of it he's one that uh, accepts it this person who said that was a churchgoer by the way but he didn't come to this church I wish he would uh Paul says the gospel is the wisdom of God. That is, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. We learn to think with gospel logic. The gospel gives us a new paradigm, a new interpretive grid, a new way of seeing. We learn to read scripture through the lens of the gospel and are able to distinguish between the laws, do this and live, and the gospels, live and do this. The old indicative imperative. Now, doesn't the Bible tell us to strive at, for holiness, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Doesn't tell us to really get jacked up about this thing called holiness? Well, of course it does, but it always gives us a gospel 
indicative, that is what the gospel is and how it works for us before it gives us a command. We run off and do command without the gospel. That is destructive. That's why our New Year's resolutions evaporate after three days. There's no gospel in it. Finally, and I close with this, the gospel is our only real source of power. Power, real power. We're often weak and struggling and resistant and impotent. We cannot change ourselves much less change anyone else. You ever tried to change anybody? Good luck with that, as John Calvin would say. You are not going to ever change anybody. You can't even change yourself. You don't have the power. But the gospel does. The gospel, according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That doesn't mean that he was embarrassed by the gospel or he thought the gospel caused people to think less of him or think he was an idiot or whatever. What Paul means, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in the sense of the gospel always creates what it calls for. I'm never disappointed in what the gospel does because the gospel is the only source of power. That and the Holy Spirit bringing it to bear upon your heart is the only source of power I have. I live out the implications of the gospel by that. We cannot change ourselves, much less anyone else, but the gospel itself is the power of God to all who believe. Turn over quickly to Colossians chapter 1. I, just, I want you to see that I'm not making this up. It's all over the Bible. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Look at verse 3 of Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So here's a church with faith, hope and love the principal graces of the gospel and he says the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is what bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth the gospel is a living thing it's a dynamic thing it's an it's a, um, a powerful thing and it works in us in other words, once I see it, once I get it, when I, once I understand it, then my heart is set free and desires with all of my heart to obey God, to live for him, to do what he commands. The gospel produces fruit. Paul, while thanking the, uh, God for the Colossians' faith, hope, and love, which he attributes to the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, indeed the whole world, bearing fruit and growing as it does. The gospel delivers us from the penalty of sin all at once, the power of sin gradually, and the presence of sin ultimately. We need to be gospelized daily. One other place in Colossians, and I will, uh, how, do we, how do we maintain gospel centrality? The first thing we do is disabuse ourselves of the notion that the gospel is Christianity 101 entrance level kind of material. 
The gospel is graduate, postgraduate, post-PhD, post-everything. It's infinite. It is infinite. You cannot fathom it. I mean, you can wade in it up to your waist, up to your neck, but it's like the ocean. It will swallow you up. But in Philippians chapter 2, unless somebody took it out of my Bible, yeah, it's chapter 3. Notice in verse 15 he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? It is euangelion in Greek, gospel. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Here in the Bible is an admonition of the same gospel that produced faith, hope, and love in this church that was increasing and growing as a dynamic. Now we're told we maintain the idea that the gospel is not merely the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. I read a quote by some pastor on Facebook and he said Christianity is not just the gospel it's so much more than that and I thought I kind of know what you're saying but I'm kind of bothered about what you're saying because if you truly understood the gospel you would understand you probably wouldn't ever say that you probably wouldn't he's probably somebody some of y'all read and uh, I don't because I don't like that emphasis but the gospel is it's where your functional trust and faith abides with it. But it becomes that which we glory in. And so uh, the gospel dwells in us. We let it dwell in us and we dwell in it. And it becomes a part of us more and more. In conclusion, to be gospel-centered is to be Christ-centered. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you are complete in him and so for 2023 I encourage you to live by God's grace as much as you can a gospel centered life because that's what one looks like I hope you do that let us pray our God and Father we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ it is our only hope it is the only thing that will give us power to live in a way that is not self-destructive and antisocial. And so we thank you, Father, for the good news that is ours in Jesus and pray that we would learn how to appropriate the implications of the gospel in our heart every day. And we know that if we believe it from the crown of our head to the sole of our feet, we would be different people. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as people who get it, who understand gospel dynamics. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.